Coming up in this podcast, Gorgon Stage 2, Corporate Tax Debate, Defence Contracts, Employment Data, Fracking Ban, Tourism and our Building Construction Feature. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Panel and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast. This week we have Matt McKenzie and Katie McDonald. Welcome guys. First up, Matt. Chevron has announced the go-ahead for Gorgon Stage 2, a $5 billion project. What does that mean for WA? Well, this is a real positive mark because I know over the past few years people have seen the slowdown of the resources industry and over time those big mega projects they've been they've been coming off basically and finishing. So there was, you know, the first stage of Gorgon, then Wheatstone and then very soon Prelude and uh, Ichthys will be finishing. And people, I guess, have been looking for what sort of the opportunities would be for them to win work. And there's been a bit going on, but what Gorgon's doing with Stage 2 is probably the most significant, you know, new project that, that's getting got the approval in the, in the past few years. So I've had a bit of a look around. I found their industry participation plan from uh, when they sort of were first proposing this. And what they're planning is a bit of drilling on the, in the Gorgon field, uh, a few new wells on the Jantz Yo field. It all adds up, as you said, to $5 billion. So the important thing here is that when Prelude and Ichthys, when they're finished, uh, that's going to mean that you know, those projects are worth about $45 billion together. That's you know, quite a significant end, I guess. Uh, but there is more positives potentially on the way, because Woodside, as viewers or listeners would know, is planning to do Pluto, uh, sorry, planning to, to do a tie-back to Pluto for the Scarborough field. And just yesterday, actually, I was at the company's AGM and they said that uh, they were very close to getting a, a tolling agreement for Browse at the Northwest Shelf Venture. They've got five of the six partners basically on board for that. So what that means is we've got two projects that are sort of underway, Great Enfield and Greater Western Flank that finish next year. Gorgon starting up soon and potential for something at Scarborough or at Browse in the years after that. And I think if you're a contractor in the industry, you would be smiling. Sure. And when we're talking about what the opportunities are, there's no new LNG plants being built out of this. This is simply expansion of or additional territory. So it's drilling Mm. and all the services that go around that. That's right. So there's no new trains. Uh, What it is, is um, sort of infield drilling as the, um, you know, certain wells wells come to the end of their life or they deplete, they do some backfill. Great. All right. So quite a bit of work, but not the same as obviously building LNG plant. Correct. Right, now, uh, keeping us in oil and gas, and you, you mentioned you attended the Woodside annual meeting. Uh, you heard Michael uh, Cheney, ch- his parting address as chairman. What did he have to say in that, in that moment? Well, I enjoyed it. It's, he's one of the greats, and he actually said he's been involved in Woodside. I didn't realise this. His graduate job when he got out of uni in 1972 was at Woodside, so he's been involved with the company on and off uh, for decades and decades. Uh, but he gave a, a basically a big... Uh, had a big go at um, the opposition in the Senate for blocking company tax cuts. He said, you know, and I think it's well established basically that it's like the number one thing that we could do to improve wage growth and make our economy stronger. And he said, basically, it's blindingly obvious that if you cut taxes, it'll be more likely to make projects go ahead. Um, And they gave the example of in the United States, they were looking at a potential project. uh, And when Donald Trump cut taxes, it increased the rate of return by one or 1.5 percentage points overnight. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you have a project which has a rate of return of of 10, then going up to 11 or 12, um, you know, it could be the difference between a project going forward or not. And Michael's point was, you know, 
there are these big oil and gas players that can do anything literally anywhere around the world. We have to do everything we can to try and make it, you know, to encourage them to be able to come here. Uh, the other point he made was uh, just about this sort of nationalisation debate on energy and he said when he was a young uh, engineer in 1972 and he was working for Woodside which was an explorer, they were, uh, they, you know, they found some sort of good stuff up there on the shelf and uh, Rex Connor, who you may recall, Mark, was a I Labor did. Energy Minister, he said, oh, well, we're going to buy it all at the wellhead and stuff here. And they said, Woodside said, well, that's basically nationalisation. And they said, please don't do that. And the government said, no, it's what we're going to do. And expo exploration basically dried up. A good example of sovereign risk, he said. Yeah, right. No, it's, uh, well, you know, good to, good to see Michael having a good go out there. And, uh, of course, he's well and truly still on the on the Australian stage with uh, all the other things he's got in on, on hand, including the West Farmers Championship. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, also during the week, there was some interesting defence-related announcements. Uh, there were. So there were two. Uh, the big one, and uh, which maybe was something of a surprise for me at least, was that um, CIVMEC got given the work to supply and process steel for the 12 offshore patrol vessels. Um, and the reason I say that was a surprise is because there's been this ongoing debate since listeners will remember last year that it was announced that Lurson would be the designer of these vessels. It's about a $3.6 billion build, by the way. Um, Lurson would be the designer, and then they said, but Civmec and Oster will have a role in, in sort of the production. Uh, and everyone was very confused by this because Oster wasn't actually part of the bid team with Civmec and Lurson. Mm. Um, so people were sort of saying, what's going on? And there was an ongoing debate as to who would have what work, and Oster were pretty confident and all the rest of it. In the end, I think uh, John Grill from Whirly Parsons got uh, reportedly got sent in to adjudicate between the two of them. Uh, and so this announcement was made, I think, on Wednesday that they'll be um, fabricating 10 of these vessels in Perth. I mean, I think the other two are in Adelaide. Uh, and we're estimating that the contract was awarded for about 200 to $240 million. The interesting thing, though, is that there was no, on that day, there was no announcement for Austal on the offshore patrol vessels. The following day, uh, they got an extra two Pacific patrol boats, which are sort of smaller and they're not as expensive. Uh, they had an extra two Pacific patrol boats awarded to them for $30 million. That adds to 19 that they're already sort of in the process of doing. Um, so I was interested to see that Austal didn't get awarded anything on Wednesday. Maybe that's because there's still that's going to be announced later, or maybe the government's view is instead they'll get them working on the Pacific patrol boats. I'm not sure. And uh, I don't know if you can answer this, Matt, but are the Pacific patrol boats for Australia or are they are they ones that we then donate yeah. to our friendly friendly nations in the Pacific? As I recall, we do donate them to to our friends in the Pacific. I think there was a program started in the in the nineties, maybe actually. Gotcha. Okay. Um, now, Matt, uh, you do our economics writing. Um, tell us about uh, some of the data released this week, unemployment being one of them. Yeah, so there's a big jump in our unemployment numbers, actually. Um, in seasonally adjusted terms, it's now at 6.9%, uh, which is the highest it's been since 2001, 2002, basically yeah, around right. then. Fascinating. So it's a big lift. It was up by, I think it was 0.6 or 0.8 percentage points um, month on month. But, and this is a big but, um, participation, labour force participation was up, you know, since it significantly, I think it was up to 68.7%. So there's an extra 13,000 people looking for work. Um, so to be fair, um, it is a big rise in unemployment, but it's probably been driven by a bunch of people coming back into the workforce right. trying to find jobs, yep. as opposed to people being 
becoming unemployed, um, which is in many ways a positive. Um, having said that, though, uh, you know, CCI came out and said, well, this is because the government is very anti-jobs. They've got this, these changes they're making to payroll tax, removing the exemption and lifting rates. Um, you can imagine the Liberal opposition came out and said this is a disaster. Uh, and I guess we'll see where it goes from here. If these people end up getting into jobs, then that's all good. Yep. But, uh, you know, it's not so bad if it's being lifted because of participation. Yeah, what's interesting is, I mean, I, I don't... I don't really understand some of that those the statistics because you know people are putting themselves back in the workforce so did that mean that they <clears throat> felt there were no jobs and they kept themselves out did it mean they had earned so much from during the mining boom for instance that they could live for a while without it mm. or did they go off and study and go into training and therefore they're out of the workforce hard to know mm. i guess uh the, the the spin on this is the idea is that well all these people have put themselves in for work so therefore they're seeing that the market is looking better and therefore putting themselves in for a job mm. um, and yet I kind of wonder about that I kind of think if people are unemployed they surely be unemployed and <laughs> so I, I or we could be at that point where sort of two or three years after a, a real low point mm. the people have used up their savings they have done the study and mm. now they are back in the work so we're now we're seeing the real unemployment rate just perhaps as the economy is actually lifting hopefully mm -hmm. okay interesting did, did any comment on my views there or oh no that's fair but i will actually add um there was a insolvency and some of the listeners may may be familiar with the uh the black tie co coffee shop in the london court cafe uh, you, some of you probably had a coffee there uh, so the the business that operated those two trading and, and they're in the cbd obviously they are they're just sort of off the terrace yeah um they, uh, the business that operated those trading names uh, was sort of forced into wind up by the ATO and so they've shut down in the past few weeks and I'm not sure what that says but when you think about it in the context that the owners of the trustee bar which is basically right next to Black Tie Co um, also had a bit of an issue uh, a few months ago uh, that's two bars or cafes basically next to each other on the terrace near Brookfield Precinct um, I wonder if perhaps people are just uh, in that area not drinking coffee anymore. I'm not sure, but yeah. And look, I think um, again, it is getting back to that point about timing. Retail is still hurting, so maybe mm. people have just held out and held out. And uh, look, I, I don't want to speak in particular circumstances, but I do think that some of those businesses that went into that particular one, where I think the black tie was, mm. I think they had some pretty high. Uh, the leases were pretty expensive I at the time so. when they signed up. So mm. it's possible that they just haven't been able to renegotiate to something that they can they can um, afford. Uh, but retail, very tough in all aspects still. So no matter what we're hearing about green shoots, I think retail, the consumer confidence hasn't lifted in WA yet to give retail the reprieve they want. Mm. Um, now, look, another subject of interest uh, is fracking. The Northern Territory has moved to lift its ban on fracking. Uh, and what does that mean for WA? Yeah, last year actually we, we had quite an in-depth look at this um, because readers, listeners would know that Mark McGowan, the, the new government came in and they put a moratorium. They said we're going to have an inquiry and see sort of what's happening. But we heard a lot of feedback from the industry saying that it was actually quite detrimental for investment. Um, and not just for fracking projects, but also for other onshore conventional projects. Um, because it sort of it created a sovereign risk issue. So we heard from, I heard from uh, some some businesses that lost you know some millions of dollars of foreign investment, which is quite you know has quite a significant impact on our economy. And I think all of last year there was only really a couple of wells driven drilled onshore in WA. So it was quite dire. And what's happened in the Northern Territory is that they've done a, an inquiry and they've said 
Yeah, we've got a lot of recommendations, but basically you can frack safely. Um, so the state government, or sorry, I should say the territory administration has said, okay, um, we'll lift the ban and we'll let it happen. One thing that's interesting about this is that Santos, the big um, energy player, actually came out and said, well, to be fair, we might be able to use some of that, you know, if we do some infield drilling and we find some gas, we can use it to backfill the Darwin LNG plant. Um, previously, they had a few different fields, I think Petrol Turn, Barossa and Crown Lateral, or Lassiter, Crown Lassiter, um, some of which are sort of in WA waters. They were the options, and now they're saying, well, maybe we'll get some onshore oil and gas from... Uh, from NT. From NT to use for that plant, so... Yeah, right. Well, it's interesting too, and I think this whole subject puts the pressure back on uh, Victoria in particular and New South Wales that have also got fracking bans or yeah. or very big strong controls because, uh, you know, big question marks over this sort of blanket ban for something that is an extractable um, material and, or mineral or mm. petroleum anyway. Um, and... and the, the science is saying, well, you can do this properly, yeah. especially, you know, and WA is a good example, same problem here, mm. banning something where we're good at managing these things. So uh, We've done it for decades even. Yeah, right. So good to see the, that some sense coming back into something that's been a little bit uh, emotional, I think, lately. Now, Matt, very different subject, quite a bit of tourism news this week. I was going to say some good, some bad, but I say it was probably some bad and then some good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be the correct order, I think. Um, so there was some really horrible uh, stories that we heard about a couple of people being suffering from shark attacks um, down south, uh, and that led the uh, the World Surfing League to basically cancel the the Margaret River Pro, which is one of the surfing events on the sort of international circuit. And they said, well, we're not going to sort of finish it this year. Um, now, the government said it's okay, it'll be ran next year. They said uh, after the last five-year contract expired, it was nearly not going to be going ahead anyway, and we came in and uh, we got it delivered for, for an extra two years, so, you know, we'll make sure that it's going to go ahead, you know, next year, and it'll be all good. But a lot of other people, I think Libby Metham, who's the shadow tourism spokesperson, were not so convinced by that, and they've said that, you know, the state government really needs to take a... And I think even the, the federal representative for the environment said the state government needs to take some action to be... Um, to actually deter sharks, whether it be smart drum lines or whatever, rather than just sort of subsidising repellents for a small number of people. Um, so, as I mean, you, I know you're very passionate about it. It's quite a controversial topic, um, but it's been basically brought again into into uh, into people's thoughts by what's happened on the weekend, and the impact on the tourism could be very significant. Uh, but the positive was that um, on uh, on Thursday, the, the state government had a couple of announcements about Rotnest. Uh, which I know is one of your favourite locations in the world. Absolutely. Uh, so they're upgrading the Hotel Rotnest, which will be renamed the Hotel Rotnest Resort. Um, I think there's going to be an ex a 20-room expansion. Uh, and while the Tourism Minister, Paul Papalia, was over there... So did I say 20? 80 rooms. Yeah, I think it's 80. 80-room yeah. expansion. Uh, while the Tourism Minister, Paul Papalia, was over there, he turned the first thought on a... Here's where the 20 was from. $20 million eco-village uh, construction at Pinky Beach. Yep. Um, and on top of that, I understand that Karma is considering a spa resort on Rotnest. Um, so there's a bit of positive news as to yeah. you know, accommodation over there. And I understand 80,000 people were there last month, according to the state government, which was quite a high number. So Yeah, so I think, um, and I'm not sure, you've, it's definitely an 80-room expansion, or are they expanding it to 80 rooms? Well, I thought it was an 80-room expansion. That's the number that I recall. I just uh, don't have it to hand. Um, look... Obviously, the new news in there is is the hotel expansion, 
and I think that's the is printable group. I think is uh, is is the the group that um, manage that hotel and I think they're the ones who are going to be doing that development even though obviously the government I think owns the the, the premises um, and then I think the the camp thing is something that's been around that's been the glamping thing has been around for a while it's just they finally get it started mm-hmm. and then I think karma also been talking about their thing for ages so it's ah, okay. nice to see that that's going um, anyway look uh, thanks Matt very helpful and uh, Katie You've been uh, doing our building construction feature mm-hmm. that comes out uh, on Monday. What are the key findings? Well, it's no secret that like most of the property sector, um, you know, construction companies have faced challenging times in the past few years. Uh, but out of the people I spoke to, you know, they're saying confidence is emerging. And I think that's mainly because of the big builds that are happening around the CBD, but also, you know, in the suburbs with a lot of the big retail projects. So I guess some of the key things that are going on, you've got the $500 million Ritz-Carlton and the Towers project at Elizabeth Quay, ProBuild's building that one. And you've got a whole range of other things happening in the city, whether it's Forest Chase, Rain Square, you know, Forest Chase, $100 million redevelopment um, done by the Lend-Lease Building Division. You've got Rain Square, $75 million by Built. Um, you know, there's not much commercial going on, um, but there's certainly a lot of mixed-use hotels. The six hotels currently being built in the CBD as well, whether that's the two Doubletree hotels, the Mantra QT Hotel, um, and we've just seen the Melbourne Hotel finish and the Western is going to be uh, formally opened next Friday. Okay. So there's a lot happening, and there's also the student accommodation, which is another key part of what's happening here. There's three under construction at the moment. Um, And, yeah, there's quite a few apartment developments going on still as well. So I think, you know, it's been a challenging time, but there's certainly activity happening. And, of course, in the background, there's been a little bit of negativity around uh, at least one major collapse. Mm -hmm. So how does that wash through? What, what What does the industry feel about that? Is that stuff over or is there still you know, that kind of tension. Yeah, so, I mean, it's no, you know, everybody's seen this in the headlines, uh, a lot of news about Cooper and Oxley, you know, a very respected builder in the mm. industry. They've been in WA for 60 plus years. Yep. Uh, one you know, of the top 10 in our yeah, list. Yeah, one of the top 10. Um, you know, Michael McLean from Master Builders Association said it kind of sent shockwaves to the industry and, and made people scratch their head thinking how could such a, you know, well-esteemed um, builder who had a reputation for paying their builders, um, their con- subcontract as well, supposedly, according to him. Mm -hmm. Um, How could this happen to them? Um, So off the back of that, there's a lot of stuff happening there to look at the issues. I mean, um, it's claimed that these subbies are owed more than $5 million. Uh, Apparently, um, construction is yet to resume on the site um, of their biggest project, Subiaco, uh, according to the city of Subiaco there. So... Um, as a result of that, um, you know, part of the McGowan government's election commitment was to do a review of the security of payment. So there's been an industry advisory group um, formed, which has about 14 industry members, including the Master Builders Association, Property Council, Law Society, Subcontractors WA, so a lot of industry people. And their job really um, is to meet throughout the year look at what's in place. Do we need new legislation? Do we need to amend the existing legislation to avoid a situation like this where people are out of pocket. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that are out of pocket are down the value chain. They're the mum and dad contractors, which has that human element, you know, um, 
there was stories of people not being able to buy Christmas presents, that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but apart, you know, aside from that, there's there's a big bigger issue here. Um, I spoke with Jason from Pat Construction, who is a member who's representing the Master Builders Association on this industry advisory group, and he said this is just a symptom of a larger issue. So, builders not being able to pay their subcontractors, that is a minor part of what's really going on here. There's a market challenge. You've got still got the same amount of people competing for work, but a smaller chain of work. As a result, people are competitive pricing at little to no margin. They're accepting onerous contracts. There's a whole range of things at play here. So he's saying, you know, rather than just looking at the buildy to subby transaction, we need to take a holistic view. We need to look at the tendering process. Should we put in place systems where we look at qualitative measures for building tenders rather than let's just go with this guy because he's got the lowest price. So yeah, that's that's a huge thing happening in the industry at the moment. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves and on a state and a federal level, there's a federal review that's um, been tabled in parliament. Um, they got John Murray to do a review. That's yet to be publicly released. Apparently, it will be publicly released at some time this year. Quite a challenge, I imagine. You know, market forces mm-hmm. being what they are. If you mm-hmm. want to build a building, you want to get the cheapest price. And exactly. The minute you start putting other qualities in there, which obviously mm. you can choose to do, Sue, but when it's imposed by the government, it'd be interesting. Um, and look, I know it probably wasn't in your feature, but I know mm. there was a side story or a related story yep. around uh, Serona Capital and, yes. a, and an arrangement they've come with the liquidators or the mm-hmm. administrators of Cooper and Oxley. Yeah, so Cooper and Oxley, just days before they went to voluntary administration <clears throat> in February, they uh, tried to... Um, get back a $5 million investment that they put with Serona Capital uh, in the King Square project. Um, so Matthew McNeely told us yesterday that the case has been dropped, uh, the equity um, investment has been on-sold um, with the administrators. And the money's returned to the administrators, the administrators yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it, it might seem like a small mm. issue, but from what I'm told, that was the critical issue for Cooper and Oxley, that they had mm. put $5 million into this investment mm-hmm. on the basis that they think they thought they were going to get the building contract. They didn't get the building contract. Mm. The building con- the building was delayed and they had $5 million stuck mm. in an investment and then they had a cash flow problem. So it's mm. ki- you know, they kind of, they went outside the normal spectrum mm-hmm. of, of uh, you know, a building company, took it a bit more risk and, mm. and you know, unlucky. Because as you say, an established mm. building company, been around for decades, great track record, mm. and in, a, in effect, one error. Well, yeah. That's my understanding, you know, of, of what I've heard about that. Anyway, thank you, Katie. Uh, look yes. forward to reading the full report. Thank you. Uh, our remuneration report is out now. In conjunction with BDO, you can purchase this deep analysis of the remuneration arrangements of more than 1,400 ASX-listed companies. It's a step up from the 2017 report we had, and the 2018 version provides timely research into the salaries, bonuses, and full packages of directors and executives segmented by company size, sectors, and geography. Go to our website homepage and hit the blue button that says Remuneration Report. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.